Come to me. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me that I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. How comforting are these words and how familiar. And many have found consolation in these words during the difficulties in their life. But also, how strange and how enigmatic. And they are, if you think about it, difficult to understand. But we should try. And then if we try, we find that they are indeed mysterious, nearly a riddle. And thinking about them, they may raise many, many questions. How does this fit into the context? How do we get from John's anxious question at the beginning of the chapter, then to John's speech about John, to Jesus' speech about John, and then to the little story about the children, and then to the woe for Chorazin, and then to our text. And if we look at our text, what is the connection between the verses 25 and 26, and then 27, and then again between 27, 28, and 29? Is it like Matthew put beads on a string without much internal connection, or is there a line of thought? And if, it, if there is a line of thought, what is it? And then if you look at the verses themselves, why are things hidden from the wise and the prudent and made known to children and not the other way around? And by the way, who are they? And then verse 27, what has this verse got to do with the previous or next? Some commentators have called it a Johannine thunderbolt. And then the verses 28 to 30, it's more proverb-like, a wisdom teaching. But then what does it mean? Who exactly are the wearied and the burdened ones? And what exactly is rest? Is it now? Is it in death? Is it in eternity? And then what kind of rest? And how does rest relate to the yoke? And verse 29, what is there then to learn? And why should the Lord, being humble and gentle, a reason to learn? Why not learn from the wise and the experienced? And then what exactly does a easy yoke and a light burden mean? Now, in reflecting on all these questions, we have to look at the context. Always the context. So we look at the literary context here in Matthew, the preceding chapters. We should also look at the next one, but I don't think we will have time. And then the broader historical context of the New Testament time in the theological jargon, Second Temple Judaism. Now, if you take a step back and you look at the Gospel of Matthew in its entirety, what we see is in the chapters 1 to 4, the apostle introduces the Lord Jesus as the Son of God. 
And then in the chapters 5 to 7, we have the Sermon on the Mount, where it is the Lord speaking with authority, and he is proclaiming himself in words. And then in chapters 8 to 9, there is a long series of healings where he shows his power in these miracles. So he's projecting himself in deeds. And then after all that, in chapter 10, he sends the apostles on their mission throughout the country. And then we get to chapter 11, and we are taking stock. What has been achieved? What is everybody's response and reaction to Jesus? In a way, that is the, what is the text is asking you? What is your response now? Well, so far, it was disappointing. Because look at the text. It starts with that somewhat anxious question on the part of John. Are you the coming one? Now, you may think, what an odd question to ask. Hadn't he himself, John that is, in Matthew 3, said, He who is coming after me is mightier than I? And hadn't John heard at the time of the baptism in Matthew 3, with the voice from heaven, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now, of course, John knew all that. And wasn't then the Messiah foretold in the Old Testament? Well, he certainly was. So why is John asking this question? Now, we should realize and not forget that we have the benefit of hindsight and the benefit of the whole New Testament. And we recognize that every important feature and characteristic of the Savior, the Messiah, was indeed announced in the Old Testament. Just to mention a few, Deuteronomy 18, verse 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, that is Moses, from among their brethren I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So the Messiah would be a prophet. And then there are the coronation psalms, Psalm 2. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion, and I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. So the Messiah would be the son of David and the son of God. And then there is Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And the Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So the Messiah would rule, he would judge, and he would be a priest like Melchizedek. And then there is Isaiah 53. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. So the Messiah would be the suffering servant. Now, if you go through the Old Testament, there are many other texts and many other images. A prophet, a priest, a king, a suffering servant, a judge, a ruler... And how would all that fit together? How could all that be combined in one man? The coming one, the anointed, the anointed one, the meaning of Messiah, 
was in Old Testament Jewish thinking not very clearly identified. And they sometimes fought him about, as about Elijah, the archangel Michael, Melchizedek. In fact, the Jews were not certain there was one person. The Qumran scrolls tell us that some of them expected two, a priestly and a kingly messiah. And that confusion you can still hear in the New Testament. For example, in Matthew 16, where we read, And when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And so they said, Some said John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So you see, there was an uncertain and hazy picture of how all these features would merge and what exactly the Messiah was supposed to look like. And that confusion still exists today. Some see the Lord Jesus as a social do-gooder and others as a revolutionary. Some see a shining moral example and others a narrow-minded judgmental man. And some see the God, the Son of God and the Savior of the world and others a fringe lunatic. And then there is the reality that we are looking at in our text. There is this man with a rather strange background, Galilee. No formal education that we have heard of. A carpenter's son, probably wearing Marks and Spencer clothes. We're not told that he was very impressive to look at. And yet, yet he had authority and power. And compare that profile with all these different pictures from the Old Testament. A prophet like Moses, a priest like Melchizedek, a king like David, more than Solomon, a ruler over the nations, a judge over the world. So in our chapter, it should not be a surprise that John is uncertain. Not about Jesus being sent and important. He had prophesied himself and he had seen the Holy Spirit. And this question does not suggest that he thinks of the Lord Jesus as a charlatan or a false prophet. Why? Otherwise, go and ask him. But the picture didn't entirely fit with the expectation. There was no majesty, no rule, no judgment. And hence the question, should we expect yet somebody else after you or next to you? And is there one anointed bringing blessings, the works John had heard about, the healings? And another one bringing rule and judgment. And it is in response to this question and this inquiry that the Lord Jesus makes the comments in our chapter. And first he addresses John in in the chapter in verse 4. John, this is what is happening. All the works that John knew about. And then there is in verse 6, And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Sometimes it is seen as a gentle rebuke to John. John, do not be offended by what you see of me. But it is already an address in general, also to the people. Because offended they were by John. Sin, repentance, acts at the root of the tree. And offended they would be by Christ, gentle and healing. And John is already in jail, and the dark clouds are gathering over the Christ. But, says the Lord, that is how it should be. A gentle, suffering Messiah and blessed 
be whoever accepts that. Blessed is who accepts Jesus as he presents himself. And then the Lord Jesus goes on in verse 7 to address the crowds. And he exposes their unbelief after all that went before in Matthew. They had heard John, they heard, they saw his disciples, and they heard the exchange, but they did not accept Jesus as the coming one. They did not acknowledge him as the Messiah. And so then Jesus asked them, Who did you go to see? Was John the Baptist some flaky figure? Well, of course not. In fact, he was the expected herald for the Messiah. And he firmly and clearly announced the Messiah in line with all the prophets and the law. And now with Jesus, as he had proclaimed himself in word and deed, the kingdom is here. But like the priests, the people did not listen to John. And then the Lord Jesus confronts them with that unbelief in the verses 16 to 19. You know what you are. You know what you are like. Now the text can be a bit confusing. Are the people accused by the Lord of rejecting an invitation? Like one group of children who refuses an invitation to play, sitting there as a sort of couch potatoes from another group, inviting and willing and standing and ready to play. Well, no. If you look at the text, that doesn't work. The unbelieving people are compared not with anyone declining to play, but with the ones inviting, commenting, and speaking. And the group that is inviting, commenting, and speaking is not active. They are not standing ready for action to play. They're sitting inactive on their bum. And what I think is meant is this. Like the priests, the people had looked at John. And they saw this stern, hair-shirted individual, austere and warning. And you know what they said. We don't want this. This austerity, these stern warnings, this talk about sin and repentance and the axe at the tree. We want something more cheerful, more joyful and uplifting. We were playing the flute and we wanted you, John, to dance. And then they looked at Jesus. And they saw a man eating and drinking with prostitutes and worse, with tax collectors, a humble man, healing and blessing. And you know what they said? Well, this is not what we want. This eating and drinking is not for us, all this lightness and niceness, this hobnobbing with the undesirables. No, we want something more impressive. We want something more stylish, more serious, more solemn. We were singing a dirge, a lament to you, and we wanted you to mourn. They were like children sitting there and complaining. And they were not accepting the Lord Jesus as he presented himself and not getting involved because neither Jesus nor John did live up to or match with their expectations. Does it sound familiar? Not getting involved, sitting on the backside, complaining that things aren't what they ought to be. It still happens, of course. There's always something. 
the minister, the sermons, the fellowship, the activities, the liturgy, the building. Something is not to the liking or as expected. And then we stay away and disengage and are not committed, like the children sitting on their bum and complaining, refusing not just the church or a fellowship, but ultimately rejecting the Lord. And then in our chapter follows a very stern warning against that in the verses 20 to 24. You see, the proclamation of the gospel they had heard in the chapters 5 to 7, and the works of the Christ they had observed in the the chapters 8 and 9 with all the miracles, and the mission of the disciples they had seen come by in chapter 10, but they looked on from the sidelines. And therefore, woe to you, Chorazin, more tolerable will it be for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment. But, but with the woe, it doesn't stop. Because we have now finally come to our text. And our text is, in response to all that unbelief, a revelation, a proclamation, but above all, an invitation. And I would like to summarize the message for you this evening as follows. Hear the Lord's offer of rest. Hear the Lord's offer of rest. And we will reflect on three questions. What is this rest? Rest is being right with God. And for whom is this offer of rest? Well, the offer is inclusive. It is for all. And how does one get this rest? How does one enter into this rest? Well, the offer is also exclusive, only through Christ. First then, hear the Lord's offer of rest. The first question, what is this rest? that is being promised to you and to me. Now, there are many ideas. Some say this is a rest in the future, a far away rest, a hereafter rest, or more skeptically, a jam tomorrow rest. Rest is then sometimes the rest of the souls of the dead, like in final resting place. Rest must have something to do with the Sabbath. It's the time of no work, but no work obviously doesn't apply in the here and now. And in Jewish eschatology, eternity was sometimes referred to as the never-ending Sabbath. So rest becomes entirely eschatological. Life with God after death, and after the final judgment. Nothing to do with today. Today life is tough and miserable, but later it will be better. That is the only consolation. Now, this, of course, easily leads to cynicism, the gospel of jam tomorrow, because nobody among the living can actually find out what is happening to the dead. But you see, the Lord is not talking about the dead. He says, come, take, and find. These are all verbs in the present. And he's not talking about doing nothing. He says, take up my yoke and learn from me. So rest hereafter may be part of it, but it is not all. And then there is another view. This is wisdom rest, or the rest that comes with understanding. 
you have to be wise, to know how to live a good and wise life, and then you will be at rest. And for that, some have pointed at the apocryphal books, the book of a man called Jesus ben Sirach. You can find it in the Roman Catholic Bible. And in chapter 1 of that book, there is very similar language to our text. And this man wrote in Palestine Palestine in the 1st or the 2nd century before Christ. So many have said Matthew knew this, and that is what he had in mind. He was referring to wisdom teaching. He's presenting the Lord Jesus as a sage, as an envoy of wisdom. He teaches us wisdom on how to live. And this wisdom on how to live a good life can take many forms, and many are being peddled today. Transcendental meditation, how to live in harmony with modern nature, yoga, all kinds of spirituality philosophies, and living in peace with yourself. You look at the papers, and a wide variety of approaches of living well is advertised, ranging from the halfway sensible to the outright bizarre. But whatever their merits, the Lord Jesus is not the prophet of any of those ideas. And then there is another view. This is, a rest is away with legalism rest. And sometimes they say, well, you see, the scribes and the Pharisees, they had all these laws and rules, 614 of them. And it was hard on the people. And Jesus, it is then said, is opposed to that whole approach. Jesus' approach is a lighter burden. Or the love for the Lord Jesus makes it a lighter burden. But you see, there is in our text no opposition to the Pharisees, and there is no polemic with them. Jesus is not attacking the Pharisees. He's talking to the people, to the multitudes in verse 7, to everybody. And the juxtaposition, a heavy yoke yoke of the Pharisees against the light yoke of Jesus, it doesn't work. There was no concept of the yoke of the Pharisees, they would have never dared, it would have been blasphemous, and Jesus wouldn't be denying or undermining God's law. And nor was he, nor was he saying, oh well, they have this harsh interpretation, but with me you can cut some corners and I can cut you some slack. His opposition was often against the hypocrisy, Corban, not lifting a finger themselves. But the Lord Jesus never comments much on these rules themselves. In fact, the ethical application of the law by the Lord Jesus in the Sermon of the Mount is anything but lighter. It is stricter. Now, coming to Jesus does not mean no work, nor lighter work, nor an easy life. And that we know from experience. Take up my yoke and learn from me. And this work of taking up and learning is in fact part of the coming to him. It goes together. You can't do one without the other. You can't be with Jesus and not take up his yoke or learn from him and be his disciple. And note the parallel between the verses 28 and 29. Verse 28, come, is then explained and elaborated in verse 29, take and learn. So rest is not the opposite of work. 
And in order to learn what rest is and what Jesus had in mind, we need to turn to the Old Testament and try to put the pieces together like the Israelites had to do to gain an understanding of their Messiah. Putting together that puzzle of a prophet like Moses and the son of David and so on. Now, we read two Old Testament passages, one about Moses and the rest and rest, and one about Solomon, the son of David and rest, and there are many, many more that you could read. Rest in the Old Testament is often associated with either the promised land, peace, rest, security, or with the temple, God's resting place. And these two are connected through worship, all the way from Moses to Solomon and beyond. For example, Deuteronomy 12, where is Moses speaking? But when you cross over the Jordan and dwell in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and he gives you rest from all your enemies all around, so that you dwell in safety, then there will be the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. That is where he would be in the temple. And 1 Chronicles 22, David speaking and citing God's promise to him, Behold, the son shall be born to you, who shall be a man of rest. And I will give him rest from all his enemies all around. And his name shall be Solomon, for I will give peace and quietness to Israel in his days. And he shall build a house for my name, and he shall be my son, and I will be his father. You see, there is through the whole Old Testament this virtuous and vicious circle. They worship God, and they would live in peace, rest, and security in God's presence with God in his temple in the midst. And the reign of Solomon, David's first son, is the climax of the Old Testament, a man of rest. But if they didn't worship, they were not right with God. And he would not go with them, as we read in Exodus. And they would, in the end, lose the symbol of his presence when the temple was destroyed and they lost their country, the security of their land in the exile. It was summarized and defined for us, in a way, in that text in Exodus chapter 33, verse 14. And he said, My presence will go with you on the journey, and I will give you rest. The Lord will go before you and never leave you. That is rest. Rest is God's presence, being right with God, living before his face and worship him. Being able, as it says in the letter to the Hebrews, the only other New Testament book that talks about rest, to draw near to God. And in Hebrews we learn that we can draw near to God after the intercession of the Lord Jesus as the high priest. You see, life can bring difficult choices in personal, in family, and in business matters. But if we live for him and ask what would the Lord want us to do and decide on that basis, then we can have peace, rest, and be assured that he will make it well. And at times life will bring difficult challenges, but we are not to worry about them. Matthew 6, therefore do not worry, saying what shall we eat and what shall we drink and what shall we wear, for after all these things the Gentiles run. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, 
But first seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So then, in listening to the Lord Jesus' offer of rest, we heard in the first place what this rest is. It is being right with and living for God. And this will give us comfort and peace of mind. We will in the second place hear for whom this offer of rest is. And the answer is the offer is inclusive. The offer is for all. Now our text isn't always read like that. Some go to verse 25 and they read that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. And they read it polemical. The phrase is then thought to exclude certain people from the revelation of these things, the Lord Jesus' works. But that is untrue, because the public ministry that went before in the chapters 5 to 7 in words and 8 to 9 in deeds was a public ministry. And then the suggestion is often made, these, the wise, these are the upper classes, the scribes, the Pharisees. And as we saw earlier, they were painted by some as burdening the people with all their rules. And these Pharisees are then equated with the upper classes of the day. Cruel aristocrats some time ago, harsh industrialists later, and maybe today, lording bureaucrats or grasping politicians. And then they go down the text and they come to 29 and they read about the weary and the burdened. And they say, well, that's the common people the ones loaded with the burdens of the rules by the Pharisees. And today that's still the common people, the ones at the bottom of the pile of society, the poor and the oppressed. But you see, the thing is, that's not what the text says. There is in the text no polemic. Jesus is talking with the Pharisees. Jesus is talking to the people, all of them. And the earlier warning about Chorazim, is not to the Pharisees and the mayor and the dignitaries of Chorazin, but to all the inhabitants of these towns. And the description of the wise and the prudent or the learned and the intelligent, it carries no negative connotations. But you see, if you remember that the picture of the Messiah in the Old Testament was somewhat diffuse, there were all these many images, unclear how they could all merge. A prophet like Moses a priest like Melchizedek, a king like David, the suffering servant, and all that into one man. Well, that is what the Lord is saying here. No learned man, not even the most intelligent fellow, could have ever ever figured out the wonderful way God would save his people. And it was not the privilege of the bright and the brainy to learn how wonderful Jesus would be. It is as the Apostle Paul puts it in the letter to the Corinthians. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. The hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory. Which none of the rulers of the age knew. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, eyes have not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. And that revelation was 
for all those unlearned, the children, the simple, the receptive, those willing to learn. And we have seen earlier in Matthew that the Lord Jesus spends time preaching to the common people and arguing with the Pharisees. And he took a whole night to explain things to the bigwig Nicodemus, and he talks to the crowds. And also if we look at verse 28, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. It is not limitative, but it is descriptive. There is no distinction between people wearied and burdened and other people who are not. Everybody living in this broken world is described as weary and burdened. Now, maybe in the eyes of the world, some people may look fine. But often, the misery travels in a fur coat. And behind the facade of success, there is the burden of sin. Sin in the sense of not being forgiven, of living without God, but also in the sense that all people suffer from the curse, the brokenness of creation after sin entered the world. Everybody meets this curse in strife, in anguish, in anxiety, in illness, his or her daily life, and finally, in death. And all these are invited to come to Jesus. So we heard then about the Lord offer of rest. What this rest is, it is being right with God, living before his face in his presence. And for whom this offer is, it is inclusive, it is for all. We will in the last place now hear, how can one get this rest? How can one enter this rest that is exclusive only through Christ? There are those who think that Matthew, in our text, 25 to 30, did a cut and a paste job, and a poor one at that. And they say the connection between the verses 25 and 6 and then 27, and then again between 27 and 28 and 30, is thought to be somewhat tenuous. In fact, say, well, verse 27 is more like the Gospel of John, the way he saw things. It does not really fit in Matthew. And as I mentioned, they called it the Johannine thunderbolt. But when people start slicing and dicing in the text, they, really, they usually have missed the point. Because for children, the receptive ones, for those who want to learn, it is best to take God's inspired word and take it as it is. And then I think it makes perfect sense. About the Messiah, no clear picture existed. Otherwise, they would not have crucified him. Everybody had his own expectation and his own interpretation, and that was the difficulty the Lord Jesus faced. John was uncertain and confused. The Pharisees didn't want to know, and the people had other ideas, like the children in the marketplace. And this is the problem that the Lord Jesus now addresses. And as we saw in the verses 25 and 6, Jesus thanks his Father for the unheard of, the unthought of, the wonderful way which he has decided to bring his salvation. A king, a judge, a ruler, a prophet, a priest, a healer who would suffer for his people. And it is not the privilege of the brainy to figure it out. 
that God himself revealed it through Jesus' appearance in word and in deed to all, to the Pharisees, the priests, and the people alike. And then he tells the people in verse 27, and I'm paraphrasing, I know that you have difficulty recognizing me, but I am the Messiah. There is no other way to God. Only through the Son. Only he knows and only he reveals. And only through him can you come to God. And then in the face of their rejection, he continues from verse 27 to 28 to 30. Issuing once more this appeal, this invitation, come to me, all those without shepherd, come to me and rest. Come and be reconciled and be right with God. And again he points at himself to son three times, me, come to me, take my yoke and learn from me because there is no other way. And I may not look like what you wanted or be like what you expected, but I am he. And that was his message to John earlier in the chapter, wasn't it? John was confused. And certainly Jesus was an anointed one, and he had authority. But where was the majesty, the rule, the judgment of Psalm 110? And was there then maybe another, a second Messiah expected? And the Lord Jesus tells him here, Yes, John, you see the healing and the preaching, and maybe not yet the ruling, but that is how it should be. I am the suffering servant also, the gentle and the humble one. And, there, and here in our text at the end he repeats it. Learn from me that I am gentle and humble. Now the word gentle, sometimes meek, is the translation of a word that is rare in the Bible. It is used also for Moses, the meekest of men, gentle, patient, long-suffering. And Jesus connects himself so with that image of Moses whom we read about earlier. And the term is also later used for the Lord Jesus when, as the son of David, he enters Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Not as the warrior king that they might have expected or desired, but as the gentle and humble king riding on a donkey, who was about to suffer, because that was the way that the king would save his people. And that thought is repeated then in the second qualification, humble. This is the same word that is used in Philippians 2, the verses 5 to 11, where it is described how the Son of God left his glory and came to die on the cross for us. But the King and the Ruler and the Son of God he was and is also. And he had said it in verse 27, and here in verse 29 he repeats it. Take my yoke. Now, only God could give the, for, the Torah the yoke, but here the Lord Jesus does it. And it is, in a way, like at the end of the Sermon of the Mount in Matthew 7, where we read, and so it was, when Jesus had ended these sayings, that the people were astonished at his teaching. For he fought them as one having authority and not as the scribes. No, of course not, because he is the Son of God. And God once more tells us what he, what he expects from us. Compliance with the law. 
But now it is not the unbearable burden of compliance with the law that has to justify us. It is no longer that we have to earn our salvation through good living. Now the yoke is easy and the burden is light because the law is the rule for our thankful living in the presence of God. Because the Lord Jesus came to suffer for us and so we are justified and in the right with God. And coming to him, living for him, the yoke, and following after him, being a disciple, is the only way to that rest. So how can we enter that rest? Well, it is exclusive only through Jesus. And so briefly then and in closing. The Lord Jesus was met with unbelief in his day and the refusal to acknowledge him as the Son of God, our Savior, just like we often do today. And in response, he warns them, Woe to you, Chorazin. But he ends with an urgent and a wonderful invitation, this offer of rest. The rest of being at peace with God. The rest of being able to be in his presence. And when I worship him, and in my life's decisions try to honor him and live for him, then there is no reason to worry about the future, for he will make it well. It is the rest of being able to say, nothing, neither in life nor in death, shall part me from him. That is the rest the Lord offers. And his offer is inclusive to all, all of you here, and all of them out there. That is why he says at the end of Matthew in chapter 28, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Go to all, and my presence will always be with you. And there are no excuses to decline to follow Jesus. There is no IQ test. It was not the prerogative of the learned. And there is no righteous living test. But you have to take up his yoke. And there is not even a Bible knowledge test. But you have to learn from him. The offer is inclusive. He wants us to take it and then take it on to all. Even in the face of unbelief. But the offer is also exclusive. No own wisdom or works, no alternative faiths, no other way of knowing God, and no alternative way of being in harmony with him, only through following Jesus. Come to me, take my yoke, become my disciple, and I will give you rest for your soul. So are you coming to Jesus? Well then, join in our closing song, Jesus, I am resting, resting in the joy of what thou art. I am finding out the greatness of thy loving heart. <laughs>